This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Hey everybody, welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. I just want to take a moment and just mention that this is the start of the sixth season of the One Thing Podcast. Thank you so much for all of you who have supported me throughout the years. It's really exciting to be approaching episode number 100. We are getting more and more interest in our podcast. Thanks to you and thanks to all the amazing guests that have appeared on the podcast. This week's episode, I welcome on Dr. Ilana Gurevich. She's a naturopathic physician and licensed acupuncturist out of the Portland area. She's the host of the Turd Nerd podcast. She oversees the Gastro AMP organization, which is a board certification organization for licensed naturopathic physicians. She also runs a clinic called Open Wellness PDX in the Portland area. She's been in the naturopathic space for many years. She's a gut specialist. It was so fun to talk with her. Um, in this episode, we went into many different areas that are areas that she thinks about and that she's focusing on, such as the virome phage therapy. She's also talked a lot about uh, biofilm and the impact of mitochondria on the gut, the intestinal enteric nervous system, and many other aspects of her, her approach, such as ozone therapy. It was fun to talk, talk with her. Um, we also tried to mention some various digestive health tips and suggestions for people who are struggling with digestive health disorders. I think you'll find this a very informative talk between two people who really are uh, super focused on gut health. So without further ado, I welcome you to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Dr. Gurvich, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. It's so great to finally meet you and get a chance to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about you, learn a little bit more about you. First thing I'd just love to hear about is you, you started a new podcast. How's that going? What's the impetus behind it and the group of you that are working together? So I, for the last decade, I was one of the owners of the largest integrative medical clinic in Portland, Oregon. And we, the way that the clinic worked is there'd be treatment rooms, but all of the doctors would have to sit in this one group provider room. And what you start noticing over a decade is that provider room was kind of magic. It was magic because there was no walls, there was no space, everybody was in there together. And then it was magic because if you felt stuck or trapped or didn't know what was going on, you could walk into this room and there was 13 providers who can give you that, their ideas. And as I would have people rotate through with me or preceptors or whatever, they'd be like, 
oh, that room is amazing because this magical discussion would happen. And so my goal with launching the podcast was to take people with diverse history and diverse views. Dr. Kapadi is a functional medicine doctor, but she's a medical doctor. And Dr. Rebecca Sand has a really interesting history working for the CDC for a stint, very research-based. And so I put us together in a room and the way we decided is one person would present and the other people would know nothing and just question, just like providers would listen to conversations as they have questions about their patients. Wow. It's wonderful. Yeah. I listened to a few episodes and it's really great um, seeing the minds work together and the different personalities. And um, and I feel like I've been in this field, like similar to you, I've been practicing medicine, naturopathic medicine since 2007. And I still show up for the podcast and learn something. And right. it does change my practice. So I'm like, oh, this, I think this actually has value because I've been doing the same thing, gastrointestinal care for almost two decades at this point. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're uh, enjoying it. It's definitely a, a great way to connect and learn and a nice way to spend time with colleagues too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is actually. We look forward to it and we gossip before and then we look forward <laughs> and then we gossip after. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's great. And congratulations. You um, are now about this weekend. You have the first uh, in-person gastro AMP conference. Um, tell us about that. The gastro AMP is one of the specialty organizations that we have in naturopathic medicine. Um, we were born in 2014, we think, and we had set a bunch of goals back then, and it took us a while to get our footing, but we had a goal of hosting in-person gastro-focused CE, and we wanted to have a CE component that was available or useful for providers like us who have been doing it for decades, but also useful for newer providers. And then our other goal was to establish a fellowship, which is a board certification in naturopathic gastroenterology. As of last year, we have our first, we're about to sit our second class of fellows for the licensing board in a couple of months. And uh, our goal is just to grow CE, that's gastro-focused for naturopathic physicians, because even if you're not specialized like I am, gastroenterology is probably a big part of your practice. Like it can't be with being a naturopath. Right. And, you know, we uh, have such a foundation in our education about treating the gut and as a, especially a place to start when you're lost uh, or when when we can't figure out the puzzle altogether. It's always a great place, a foundation of our care. Congratulations again. Yeah. I don't, I think, you know, people who aren't familiar with naturopathic medicine as much and listening to this may not realize, but having a board specialty is a big deal. It is something that our profession has not had traditionally. And now we have in certain areas, um, certain specialties, and it definitely gives people a, a career trajectory or track and the foundation to stand on. So it's, it's really great to hear. Yeah, it's also a great organization just because you can pick the brains of your colleagues. Like we have a great Facebook forum for uh, naturopaths to like draw cases on. And then, you know, this is like, for me, I consider this like my high, my biggest holiday is the Gashua MP because I get to hang out with all of my colleagues for a weekend yeah. in real life, which we haven't got to do for a couple of years. So it's going to be really a great conference. I'm very excited. Yeah. Well, you went to a great naturopathic university. In fact, 
I went to Bastyr and like 80% of my naturopathic guests that I reach out to seem to be National University of Naturopathic Medicine graduates. I just find such uh, balance and such confidence coming out of that university and the practitioners. What was your experience like going there? I, it was very, very sweet and it was very, very hard. You know, and I, I did a doctorate in naturopathic medicine and a master's in oriental medicine simultaneously. And so I learned very effectively how to cram information into my brain, discharge it on a piece of paper, and then immediately forget it. I like <laughs> to tell people I have forgotten more than most people have ever learned. But it was also very supportive. And I was lucky enough when I was there to be taught by a lot of really old naturopathic physicians before the period of green allopathy or before the period of you know trying to get into the insurance model where we were just taught really how to think, how to think critically, how to look at a case and not automatically assume it's a diagnosis, how to look at the whole picture, which I think is what naturopathic medicine's gift is, is it really just allows you to look at the person as a person and take in every aspect of their being because every aspect of their being can affect their health. Yeah, absolutely. I just find like if you look at a lot of our leaders um, in our profession, you know, there's definitely a really strong foundation at National University. It seems like a good balance between traditional naturopathic medicine and and science-based naturopathic medicine. So um, it's really great to see. And especially in the digestive world, like a lot of good docs down there, you know, you guys all have really pushed forward the profession in gastroenterology. So you and I are both gut-centric physicians. I'm not officially uh, on your podcast, but that we're doing this together. So th this is my opportunity to podcast with you. So it's exciting. Um, I, thought, I, I think, you know, most people, you know, are hearing a lot about the gut these days. And I think it's kind of have a, has a wave of momentum, you know, where it's definitely has its, has, has taken foothold in medicine and in natural medicine, functional medicine as being such an area of focus. I think it's good to take a step back and and start thinking about what we what we don't know yet that we really wish we knew about I, the gut. So I think, you know, I look at how different things change the way I practice naturopathic gastroenterology, right? So I think about Alison Seebecker, like the, I, the first time I sat in a class with her was 2013. It was in like, uh, we used to call it the dungeon or, you know, this room on the first floor, no lights. And she would talk to us, she presented for the first time about SIBO. And then I started, you know, you go back to practice. The thing about conferences is like, it really invigorates you and so then I went back and I started looking at my patients and I was like, who have I missed for SIBO? Who is the people that I missed? And then I start treating and I like get to the next level and I help a different breadth of people that I couldn't have helped before. And then, you know, a year and a half ago, Dr. Kapadia, who's on my podcast, did three episodes on SIFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And that was something that I kind of knew about, but I wasn't ready to dive into. And then I learned about that. And then now I started diving into SIFO. And then you see, you know, you help a whole nother sl a sloth of patients. You get to the next level. Paul Anderson talking about biofilms. It did the same thing for me. What I'm curious about is the virome and phages. 
Because what I'm noticing is I'm starting to use, thanks to Dr. Sacha Ambrose, who did a phenomenal presentation about phage therapy at the gastroenterology and last year, phages and viruses, we don't know anything about it. And I am positive that they have as big of an impact on our microbiome as the bacteria and the, and the, and the fungus. I'm excited to see what research shows us about the virome coming up in the next decade. Yeah, I, I agree. And just to kind of simplify that for people who may be new to the word phages or the virome, like what's your 101 description of, a, of what a phage is? Phages are, inc- they're super exciting. So if you go back to like the 1920s, every single scientific body was studying phages. Phages are basically viruses that infect bacteria. So if you want to talk about the original arms race, it was between viruses and bacteria. And so when you're looking at a phage, it is a virus that literally only affects uh, infects one strain of bacteria. So phages that are E. coli phages only can go in and reproduce an E. coli bacteria. If it's you know, pseudomonas phage, it can only go to a pseudomonas bacteria. So it's like this laser pointed way to deal with infections that are dominant, like one species infections that are dominant. However, the problem with phages is it only treats one bacteria. So obviously in the 1940s, when we started researching antibiotics, we were like, oh, this wipes everything out. This is way better. And nobody studied phages anymore, except for the only place where we maintained it is it went to the country of Georgia in the Eastern Bloc and the former Soviet Union. So the country of Georgia has continued to study phages. The rest of the world went through antibiotics. Now we realize maybe it's not good that you're killing everything and maybe a targeted focus is a better idea. And so right now we have a lot of phase three clinical trials in the US affiliated with different universities that are looking at phages as a possibility for treatment. Very nice. Yeah, they they are so interesting. And you know, I think people probably want to know that do we do we take eat phages? Do we grow them? Do we supplement them? Are they there anyways? What's like how do they question. get there? So yes, they're definitely there anywhere. They're everywhere. And actually what's happening in Georgia where they're where they're uh doing a lot of the storage and a lot of the um where they're like labeling them, they'll find them you know, in the water, in the ocean, in the sea, in the woods, like they'll find it everywhere and then they'll reproduce them in their lab. They are generally everywhere in the, in our world because bacteria is everywhere and viruses are everywhere, right? Which was one of the problems that, you know, happens with COVID. It's a virus and so it goes everywhere. And to utilize them in medicine, it kind of depends on where your infection is. So you absolutely can take them orally. You absolutely can take them as a rectal suppository. You can also apply them topically. Like there's a lot of really interesting uh, research that's done with um, pseudomonas infections post-surgery. Because pseudomonas is this bacteria that like grows this crazy thick biofilm. And so they're using pseudo- they're using the phages to deal with a topical pseudomonas infection post-surgery with mm relatively promising results. It's so great. I mean, it, it's nice to see that, you know, we're, we're getting away from sort of these, this broad spectrum, antibiotic, everything approach and starting to look more at um, terrain or biologic medicine, um, taking it seriously. And I've actually, 
and I'm sure you have too, seen certain compounds already on the market with phages in them. And some of them are, you know, if you look them up, more E. coli directed, which I mean, and we're not talking necessarily about like the E. coli that's necessarily with food poisoning, are we? We're, we're talking about certain E. coli that can expand and become pathobionts or path, they're, they're innate E. coli that's really expanded and started to dominate. Yep. Yep. It's really, it's, it's, it is kind of exciting. It is a very exciting time because I think for the first time in history, we're really changing our understanding of medicine in a way that's no longer a one size fits all, but patients are really divided, like they're requesting and demanding an individualized perspective based on what's happening in their bodies. And we have testing available where we can actually see what's happening in their bodies and treat them in this precise way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so along those lines, like zooming in even more into that world, like what what do we know about intestinal, what don't we know about intestinal permeability that you wish we knew about? Because like a lot of this collides on that topic, you know, it's like dysbiosis, intestinal permeability, gut inflammation, which can be, you know, related to IBS, IBD, functional bowel disorders. What like what what don't we know about the the intestinal lining or permeability that you you wish we knew at this point or that you're excited to learn about I feel like I'm very excited about the research that's happening right now with the functionality and pathogenicity of the microbiome in the small intestine that is really a cutting edge field that is 2 years old maybe 4 years old mm-hmm. tops like we've never been able to access what is in the small intestine and what's a normal appropriate amount of diversity in the small intestine. Cause you know, large intestine, you collect a stool sample and that gives you a pretty good look. A small, the small intestine, you have to get in there with a probe and there's a bunch that you're blind to mainly because you can't get any probe into the majority of the small intestine. And so I'm curious to see what we're going to learn is a healthy makeup with that. What is the microbiome that makes up the small bowel and how we can directly impact it? I think that for me is the most interesting. And, you know, there's the things that we know. We know that diet and lifestyle and, you know, movement and exercise is probably going to fix 60% of issues. But we Mm -hmm. also know that that 40% that remains is individualized and a question mark. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah the small intestine, and we've made so so much progress even in the last year. You know, identifying um, keystone species um, that are associated with the different subtypes of of SIBO, intestinal methane overgrowth species, uh, hydrogen sulfide species, hydro, hydrogen dominant SIBO um, species. So yeah, that's that's really exciting. What drives me a little bananas still. And I think it's supposed to come out this year. I've been told and promised by someone who is in the know that we're going to learn drivers, dietary drivers for methanogenesis. Oh, that's going to be interesting. I mean, does that, does that uh, hang you up as much as it hangs me up? Because I, I think about it and, you know, I try to put the p- picture together and there's so many possibilities, but I'm curious what you think about that. I feel like I've come to this place where when I have a patient that 
you know, they present with methanogen overgrowth and I'm doing all the right things and they're not getting better. I've now shifted my lens to be like, okay, I'm treating the wrong thing. There has to be something else here. There has to be a fungal overgrowth. There has to be a biofilm, which is why our treatments can't get there. Or there has to be some kind of inflammatory cascade that I'm missing that's paralyzing the intestine. You know what I mean? Like I'm generally like if I stall out on those patients, I land in, I'm treating the wrong thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's what's natural about kind of when someone gets a test back and say it's sky high in methane. And we're talking about, for the listeners, we're talking about this uh, SIBO test, which are the lactulose hydrogen breath test or glucose hydrogen breath test. And the, the test comes back either high in one of three gases, methane being one of them. The first thing patients will do is like, what did I do to create this? What am I eating? What am I not doing? And it's like, we don't necessarily have that answer yet as far as, far as and we might, that might even not be the, the core driver of this, right? So um, it's just be curious if we we tease out a little bit more about how, how nutrition impacts intestinal back, microbial overgrowth or yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, so you mentioned um, in that last comment about a topic that I've heard you lecture on, which is biofilms. And what I wish we had, and maybe you know more about this, is a way to pick pick that up clinically that there is a biofilm issue. Is it just a matter of people who are kind of dealing with a multi-system issue or is it people that are not responding to treatment? How do you go about, first of all, what is biofilm and how do you go about thinking that someone has a biofilm problem? So biofilms are, there's physiologic biofilms and there's pathologic biofilms. So they are absolutely within the context of normal and they can also be pathologic. When I think about a biofilm, there's a couple of things that I'm always looking for that's going to cue me in. Chronicity. The more chronic the infection, the more likely there is a biofilm that's going on there. What a biofilm is, I always describe it in the context of humans, because I'm pretty sure humans are a biofilm on the earth. You know, we come in and we build these crazy brick houses that are very strong. And so when it's raining outside, like it is in the Pacific Northwest right now, we don't care because we've got our really strong walls to keep us protected from the elements. That happens in our bodies. Plaque on your teeth is one of the easiest concepts of a biofilm. You know, there's multiple bacteria that will go and build these walls around themselves. And so you go to the hygienist and the hygienist scrapes your teeth and you've got like airflow through your teeth, right? And then three weeks later, it's gone because the bacteria has rebuilt the walls that surround it. Uh, That also is true in your GI lining, in other mucous membranes. And so what happens is the the bacteria, the the viruses, the funguses, all of it are working together to create this structure, an EPS layer, uh, a polysaccharide layer that protects it from the elements, right? That's important because it means treatment is more difficult because you're not going to get the treatment through the layer right? So when we're talking about bacteria in particular, about 30% of them are in a single celled species being that's called plantonic, one little E. coli doing one little thing and that's it. But the majority of bacteria live in these really, really complex 
biofilm communities. They live in cities where there is bacteria that specializes in, you know, excretion and bacteria that specializes in building walls and bacteria that specializes in gathering nutrition. And when they're in this protected biofilm layer, they share DNA, they share function. They're, they slow, actually their reproduction is significantly slower. So they're not turning over new bacteria as quickly, which means that when you, let's say, treat with antibiotics and you end up with an antibiotic resistant species, it goes back to this biofilm community and it can affect an entire generation of bacteria to make them reproduce. So, you know, that, that right there is just a fascinating concept. I mean, to think that you could have this special agent go out, get exposed to a major weapon and then come back and say, hey, I've got the cheat code for this antibiotic. Here you go. And not just for bacteria in its species, for bacteria. Period. Right. You know what I mean? Like it is, it, and like one of the things, one of the reasons why they think they're having so much more antibiotic resistance with UTIs uh, in women, which are generally E. coli based, is because we feed antibiotics to chickens. So we were feeding mm. antibiotics to chickens. They were developing antibiotic resistance. We're eating those chickens. And then the denatured bacteria or even the alive bacteria from the chicken is teaching our bacteria to be immune to the antibiotic. I mean, we're, we're losing an arms race with bacteria. Bacteria is always going to be smarter and better. They've been at this for longer. That's a good point. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's so easy just to be human centric and, you know, kind of realize like mitochondria come from bacteria, <laughs> right? That's the next thing that I'm just about to start writing on is I'm like, I, I'm in the process of writing my next presentation, which is going to be, I just, I have realized that the GI mitochondrial connection, like there is a type of mitochondrial mm -hmm. deficiency that directly affects the GI patients. And I'm just diving into the literature right now to figure out how treating mitochondria can affect that subset of patients where I can't get them better because I'm treating the wrong thing. I'm just yes. about to start working on that paper. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've actually, actually thought about that quite a bit and dove into that a, a little bit myself just thinking about these really stubborn gastroparesis patients or the patients who we just can't get their bowels to move is yeah. you know, is it an ATP issue of the gut mm -hmm. is it something to do with perfusion cellular energetics it's um, yeah, that's exactly really I, I want to figure out what the literature says about that exactly yeah and because I think that GI would be really eye-opening it's and the GI is a very energy heavy, like the energy need of the intestinal tract is very abundant. And so mitochondrial dysfunction has to be playing a role in some of these chronic patients. Well, you, I think a good model to think of that is the um, diabetic. Mm -hmm. Totally, with neuropathies. Because yeah. if you think about what's happening in the chain of events that happened downstream with the neuropathy and how that interrupts cell signaling and you know, neuron mit mitochondria. I mean, mitochondria are in every cell. So, you know, if you're if you're having a depletion of nutrition or a depletion of of oxygen, these are all things that yeah really would be great to know. And I think it would help us, you know, kind of get out of this um, only one option to treat, which is when we have a really sluggish or uh, intestine that has motility issues, you know, we have prokinetics and they do okay for some, but a lot of people, they, they don't yeah. really help. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's not enough. 
Like there's a subset of people that, that do really, really well with it. And there's a subset of people that I'm like, what the hell is happening with your bloating? Why can't I crack your, like just yesterday I had this patient, I have tried everything with her bloating. And I was like, why the hell can't I crack your damn bloating? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you, um, are you getting more and more aligned with the brain gut access in some of these patients? Like where, you know, kind of moving up to the central nervous system more. I, so my parents are psychiatrists, my aunts, ah. my uncles, we're all, I come from a long line of psychiatrists. <laughs> Um, and for a year, I, when I moved back East, I actually practiced with my father, who's a holistic psychiatrist, significantly more naturopathic than I'll ever be, to be honest. And I, I realized that I really do not enjoy working with those patients. I just, I really, I'm good with like what I lovingly call psychiatry lights. So tad of depression, a little bit of anxiety, maybe a little bit of dysthymia, you know what I mean? But the psych people, like I'm positive that there's a huge brain connection with the, with the intestine, you know, like most of the nerves are intestinal to brain and only 10% are brain to intestine. There's a huge connection, but it's, I do, I'm not the best for that particular population. So I've gone the other way. I want to move only to the enteric nervous system. I don't want to look at the central nervous system until I have to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's just interesting to kind of with some of these, um, new approaches that are out like i've I've become personally fascinated in gut directed hypnotherapy oh so interesting i agree i totally agree and they did a study that um the people who who developed this app called nerva you heard of that app yeah i'm using it um they did a study where they put it head to head against the low fodmap diet in ibs patients and it was you know equally as effective I saw that for controlling IBS symptoms. So yeah. it's, it's, it's just really, it's a good tool for people. I mean, I think we all need speaking about myself and everybody I know, we all need to chill out a little bit and help yeah. our, help our body rest and digest. <laughs> I actually, I have had, so I tried nerve app with a lot of patients. I've had some success. I've had even better success sending people to a hypnotherapist. Yeah. Like it's a little bit more targeted. It's a little bit more patient specific. It's a little bit more precise, but really could be exceptionally helpful. I completely agree with that. Yeah. We had um, Linda Stelludi on the podcast who has a gut directed hypnotherapy practice. And I've sent a number of patients to, to her and she has like an eight week one-on-one program and they've done really good with with her work, I, I get routinely great feedback back. And I think you're right, like working with an app versus working with a person. For some people, they like the app. Some people like the one-on-one connection. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting. So with the enteric nervous system, that is a whole world in itself. So Literally. I kind of dove into it during... I, a, a conference I spoke at last a year ago talking about uh, tryptophan and its connection to the enteric nervous system. What are you learning these days about the enteric nervous system? And for people who don't know, this is like the kind of the automatic control, the sort of the part of the nervous system that runs um, automatically behind the scenes of the gut. So we, we can't really tell it to work, 
with our mind necessarily or with anything we do, um, but maybe you know we, we you've, we've learned some ways to influence it. Um, can you tell us more about the auto, uh, enteric nervous system? So it is interesting because it is a nervous system in and of itself, right? There's the central nervous system, which is its own thing, but really controls both the order, uh, both the peripheral nervous system and also somewhat controls the enteric nervous system. However, the enteric nervous system also does not seem dependent on the central nervous system's input, right? So when I'm working with patients, I'm like, you know, I we, we just actually this weekend recorded an episode that will launch end of November, all about how to take a GI history, right? Like when I'm when I'm sitting with a brand new patient, I'm listening to them and I'm like, is this a stomach issue? Is this a small bowel issue? Is this a large bowel issue? Is this a dysbiosis issue? Or is this a nervous system issue? Because all of those will present similarly, you know, bloating, gas, diarrhea, pain, whatever, but they're targeted from different reasons. And because of that, you have to treat them very differently. And so the, I think the most important thing for clinicians at least, and maybe for patients is to be like, why, why is there dysfunction here? Where does this dysfunction stem from? The gastrointestinal tract is like this crazy complicated orchestra where if like percussion's not doing its thing and the wind instruments aren't doing their thing and the string instrument, like it can be chaos. And our job as clinicians is to be like, what is the underlying cause of this chaos? And oftentimes you are absolutely right. We live in a world that is fast paced. It is, there's no time to actually live like humans. You know, we like pretend we're robots and pretend that it's fine for us to sit on our asses for eight, nine hours a day, not moving, looking at a screen. And then we expect everything to work. That's like, you want to like, I feel like that's like the naturopath's gift to patients is we remind them how to live like humans so that it's easier to fix the stuff that doesn't work because it's really, we're not allowing it to work. Yes. Yeah. And you know, there was, uh, there's actually a book that I, I picked up just because of the title. <laughs> it's called Digesting the Universe. Um, oh. It's, it's uh, written by an acupuncturist about this, the, the GI track and how much it's synthesizing and mm-hmm. that the title just really grabbed me. <laughs> And, you know, the other thing that it's important to think about is the immune system. You know, like the other big component of the that gastrointestinal tract is what's your immune system doing? Because you want to talk, talk about synthesizing information, the amount of immunoglobulins that are in your GI that need to be in line and finding all the pathogens and letting go all of the, you know, beneficial commensal stuff, that is a struggle for a system. So basically what we're saying is that the, that, uh, gut health matters. <laughs> yes. It, it matters in quite a bit. And I think it's kind of overwhelming for people to say, well, wow, like where would I even start with this? I want to get to that in a little bit, just kind of like your perspective on like how you would even start the conversation. Cause I mean, we, you could, you could treat almost a certain aspect of uh, most conditions by looking at the gut. Um, I personally think that there's like primary gut disorders where the conversation definitely starts in the gut and then expands outwards. And then I, then there's like other chronic conditions where maybe they're not responding to their primary approaches and they're stuck. 
and then look at the gut as another vector. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. How about yep. you? I have the luxury of being very, very specialized. <laughs> so yep. my, I know a lot about very little, but luckily a lot of those other people don't come into my office anymore. I feel like when I was a newer doc, you know, when you're a newer doc, you're like, me, 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 I do everything. I do everything. And then as an older doc, you're like, no, no, no you do that. You do that. I do what I do. You do that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. That's I, I hear am. you. I hear you. Yeah. It's. And so you probably, the people who, you know, you probably have people that seek you out, you know, that's their kind of their first entryway into getting help. And then you probably get people who have had three or four or five or six or more uh, natural natural health practitioners. And then they, you you have like a major puzzle to figure out. Is that the case? And that is honestly, that's my favorite. Uh, My favorite is when I can look through new eyes at, you know, they come in with all of the tests, all of the, you know, regular from the gastro and from the primary, and then all of the naturopathic tests. And I'm like, oh, what sentence didn't get finished? Oh, we need to finish this sentence. Is this still a thing? Or, oh, okay, I need to think about this really differently because this person's done all the right things and now I need to figure out what got missed. It's it's really, it's fun. It's very satisfying. I love that. You get to be like a ninja. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Make like a little subtle move that never was made. Yep, and, then and sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah, And other times it's I'm true. like, oh, I think... It's sure. I see what they were thinking, but I'm wondering if you have this other thing. I actually think you need to go see this person who's way better at this other thing. Like you're just a pit stop in me to get you to the right person. And other people, I'm like, oh, no, no, I speak this language well. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I think it's good for uh, new practitioners to hear this too, because I think it is reasonably good to you know, start wide and learn about as many things as possible and develop your feel. Like I remember, you know, the moment when I was like, yeah, the gut is my thing. Do you remember that moment? For, I mean, I know a little bit about your personal story, so I'm sure the gut's been your thing. And I also have a personal backstory, but clinically, like what, when did you know, like the gut health was your thing? You know, I, I mean, I'm lucky enough and I'm pretty unlucky. To, I, I was very, very sick as a child. And while my father was going through his midlife crisis, you know, discovering alternative medicine, I stumbled upon a pretty incredible naturopath who saved my life. And I I think he saved my life in a variety of ways. I was really sick with Crohn's disease and I was hospitalized shortly before I saw him. Uh, but I also he think he saved my life by just putting me on my spiritual path. You know, like I do feel like, this medicine that I get to practice, A, it's like a huge honor, but B, it's like, I do think it's why I'm on this world right now. Like, I think I was put Mm -hmm. on this earth to do the type of medicine that I've done. And so I knew I always wanted to do it. I feel like what gets me really excited is when I learn from my colleagues something that I've been missing, that I'm like, oh, this is like, it's, it's like, you know, when you make a soup, and you like add the salt and you're like, it all like yeah. comes together that it's yeah. like that, that I'm like, oh, this thing. And then you only look at that thing for a little bit. You know, like I'm, I'm like just entering my everything CFO moment in time. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, what's going to be the next piece to like bring it together. And I hope that by the time I'm done on this earth, 
I have enough pieces to be able to help as many people as I can. Yeah. And I'm sure like, you know, looking back as from when you started, um, the percentage of people that you're helping may be the same, but the people that you're helping are much more complex. So like those people weren't getting helped before. And because of all that you're learning, you're, you're able to kind of help more people that would otherwise be stuck. You know what I think about? I think about you probably are not running the same tests that you used to run 16 years ago. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I tell that to patients all the time that like when everybody wants tests, right? Yeah. And at least in my community, I live in a high tech, data driven Seattle, Bellevue. Like, is there a test? That's like a big question. And I love tests. You know, they're fun. They're interesting. But I was trained when there wasn't tests. Like, maybe there was a few. Yeah. But, and they're not like, I would never run those tests anymore. But right. it's not like people didn't get better. Right. Exactly. Like, we were, you know, there's a Yiddish term, seckle, right? You know, where you use your you use your your brain and ask good questions and take a good history and uh, do a clinical exam and put the piece together. And you know, yeah, a lot of people we were just fine with that. Yep. And now we have this whole new generation and layer of some really helpful tests, which I think give some added benefit and confidence and confirmation and direction precision. But I mean, I, I, I don't feel like we're at a point where we're reliant on tests. I was, t I was lecturing at a conference. I don't know, like 2014, 2015. It was, it was the, one of the big uh, SIBO conferences that UNM put through. And there was this gastro Dr. Skip, uh, Skipignango, he was from Italy. I'm, I'm butchering his name, but he was a really interesting. He was a gastroenterologist and a pharmacist, and he was the guy who actually started all the research on Zyfaxan, which is why Pimentel picked up using Zyfaxan is out of his research. And we were sitting, we had this like gathering right before the conference, which actually we're about to have right before the gastro AMP conference, just to like get everybody on the same page, just so we can have a, co a conference that feels like it's not just a bunch of speakers, but people are saying the same things. And one of the things he said, and he was a guy back then in his seventies, was he was like, in my gen generation, everybody got a digital rectal exam and you could learn so much about what's happening in their rectum and in, in their digestive tract just by the digital rectal exam. And he was like, now when I do rounds, none of the doctors put their fingers in anybody's butts. You know what I mean? Like DREs right. are just not done because instead we do CTs. You know, it like we didn't yeah. have CTs when he was training, but there was a lot of physical exam that you would learn by the knowledge in your fingers. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was, I think I was at that conference. Um, I remember him speaking. He was um, a genius. He is so smart yeah. and he's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, can't remember what year that was. I think it was 2014 or 16 or something it, like that. Yeah, it was like right there. Because yeah. I think Allison's first one was 2013. It was, yeah, yeah. Th that was a really good conference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, uh, Dr. Pimentel, you know, was saying that people, because of the new technology, I, I was talking to him on one of our podcasts, and he was saying because of the new technology, you know, we are picking up on stuff way earlier than we would have. Yeah. And so it yeah. presents this this uh, this conundrum 
scenario where it's like, well, how do you how do you treat someone early in the process versus when someone's full in it in the process? And um, so, we, yeah, it, it, the testing and the the data and the analysis is giving us a whole new kind of world of clinical medicine. Yeah, I I definitely you know am really fascinated by microbiome testing. I think it's really uh, going to is informing us some things along those lines, like of what we don't know about microbiome tests. When you get back a, say a stool analysis with, um, you know, a microbiome analysis, what do you wish you would know about that, that we don't know yet? Yeah. Besides you mentioned the virome and the, the uh, phages, but like anything else like that jumps out. So I think that at this point, when I'm looking at those tests, there are some bad guys that I just am always going to go after. I feel like I, there's enough data on Pseudomonas being a very, very robust EPS builder. So they do they build that wall on the biofilm that if there is Pseudomonas there, I'm going to give them a big biofilm disruptor protocol, and then I'm going to give them something to deal with the Pseudomonas. That's also true. I feel like there's enough data on Klebsiella. Uh, but I, what I haven't done is, you know, I've looked at some of the species, but I haven't looked into every single one to know what I'm looking for. And that's just on me with time. Yeah. And I think, you know, for all, in all fairness is there's not many of these um, species that have had robust studies in human trials or where we actually know what they do in humans. We know a lot about rats and mm -hmm. as one of, one of my colleagues pointed out that rats eat their own poop. So it's like I mean, a little different. Humans are eating their own poop thanks to FMT. We, that's true. But by, yeah, but not every day. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, will, I am taking, uh, there's a product that's made by one of our colleagues, which is sterilized FMT. It's a thing. It's called, it's a postbiotic. It's called Thana. And I will say I'm taking it every day. So I am eating. Okay, you are eating else's someone else's. I'm eating someone else's, else's paralyzed poop. poop. So it's a but little bit more of a poop. sophisticated version. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for the sterilized it, part. It, is that the um, company out of Portland? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, Andrea Macbeth and Piper. I can't remember Piper's last name. But it, like, personally for me, it like helps my sleep more than anything else, actually. Wow. Like it put me, and and I started taking it, I used to take it at night, uh, and I started having crazy vivid dreams. Mm. And I don't, like, I don't usually dream that vivid. And then I had to start taking it in the morning because I was like, I think this is the, I think the microbiome is definitively impacting your sleep, for sure, mm. based on what I've learned from taking this product on myself and then using it with complicated patients. Well, maybe the donor was a shaman, so. I mean, I think they, they I don't know where they're getting their donors, but they have to be really clean. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's fascinating uh well i'll have to look that i think i came across their work but i didn't realize that it was out to out to market so that's yeah, it's cool. really it's it, it's i think that it has a lot of utilizations i don't even think they know the full capacity of what it does and i think that i've been primarily using it for complicated insomnia just because it was so effective for me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very nice well i've a few more things I just want to ask you because I'm just really curious um, based on your work. And then I want to kind of bring a little bit of this together just now that I've had a chance to kind of go through a lot of different areas with you. So 
I have a colleague, uh, Dr. Lucy Mailing, um, who does a lot with research on on the gut, especially like intestinal permeability, inflammatory bowel disease, IBS. Um, she talks a lot about the kind of barrier issues um, related to um, like this oxygen gradient issue and how pathobionts survive under a certain kind of environment. And so when you, and you treat pathobionts like with a certain therapy called ozone therapy, Mm -hmm. can you talk about ozone therapy and how that might connect with this kind of world of pathobiont expansion? So the way I that's, think a, that's actually, by the way, that's not a fair question because that's a whole like seven, seven day seminar, but just like maybe like basic version of that. Yeah. So I, ozone, I do feel like has the potential to be very useful for my IBD people. I've used it for IBD going probably back to, I think I was uh, certified in 2015. Uh, so I've been using it for a long time with inflammatory bowel disease patients in particular. And Ozone is really interesting because a couple of things to know about it is it's pro-inflammatory before it's anti-inflammatory. So that's important if you're monitoring the patient to see how flared their disease is. It's important to know that you need to give ozone a a little while to be inflammatory before it's anti-inflammatory. Ozone is also cheap, to be honest, and it can get through the entire GI tract as an anti-inflammatory where it's not losing its efficacy because its action is immediate. And so it's one of my... It is one of my go-to treatments for my IBD people, especially if they're inflamed. I think that what it does, I think it works on a bunch of different levels. One of the things that it does is it has this ability to find cells that are inflamed and aggravated where that cell wall is not totally intact. And it goes in there and like digs deeper into those broken cells to actually break them even more to then show the immune system that we need to start the apoptotic environment to get rid of those inflammatory cells, right? So it's doing that. It also has the ability to go to the mitochondria. You know, ozone for some people, Mm -hmm. it's one of the most effective ways to stimulate the mitochondrial function. And so you're, you're giving that electron into the electron transport chain because that's what ozone is. Oh, it's like, you know, oxygen is really stable, a husband and a wife stable. Ozone is O3, a husband, a wife, and a girlfriend. It's not going to stay in that situation for very long. It's going to go back to O2 pretty quickly, right? So then you have that third electron that's dysregulating and that third electron is going directly into the electron transport chain and just getting in there to make it work. And then the third thing that ozone is doing is it's really affecting any of the anaerobes because we're hyper oxygenating the area. And so you're taking, I'm introducing an excessive amount of oxygen, which is pretty much what it is. And so any anaerobes that are pathologic or even some of the ones that are probably functional are not going to be able to thrive in an environment with that much oxygen in the area. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the setting it's used in, is it like early flare IBD or is it you know, early flare of, you know, other conditions that are digestive, like uh, IBS flares? I don't use, it's not a very comfortable treatment. It is kind of mean, you know, like, so you're taking, it's gas. You're putting Mm -hmm. gas into a bag, ozone gas into a bag, and then you're putting a catheter on that bag and you're inserting into the rectum, right? And so, you know, the large intestine is supposed to contract and push down. And now I'm putting somewhere between 250 to 750 cc's of gas Mm -hmm. 
Like mm -hmm. that is not a comfortable treatment. So I use it in acute IBD flares uh, instead of a steroid. Like if I'm not worried, I'll yeah. start them on ozone first. We'll be monitoring really aggressively. We'll be watching their symptoms. And uh, so I'm trying to use it as opposed to a steroid because it has less risk than a steroid. Mm -hmm. If they're getting worse or if you can't tolerate it, you'll know real fast. And then we switch our approach and we think about either something pharmacologic or we think about something else. But, and mm -hmm. then I, I, you know, it's rarely the only thing I do, but it is in my flares, one of the main things I do. And then I will also say there is a subset of patients that use it for maintenance. I just, it's hard for me to recommend that type of uncomfortable environment for me for maintenance, but people, patients do say that it works for them. And a lot of them will actually go on to buy their own ozone machine. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. That, I think that would give them a sense of agency and, you know, empowerment to be able to self-treat if done safely and, um, you know, not have to rely on going to a, an office, what have you. It's really important. And that, that is the bummer. You know, ozone gas is very unstable. So they really have to fill the bag in my office and then administer in my office. Patients are oh, doing this all day long, but really by, by the 30 minute mark, it's no longer, it's now just oxygen. You've got 30 minutes on that bag. And so obviously the, the closer you are to using the ozone that fills the bag, the stronger that ozone is. Okay. So going back to one of the comments I made earlier about um, how, you know, this world of the gut is so vast and, you know, you kind of really stay in the kind of specialized world. So you're seeing, you know, cases that are, primary digestive health needs and maybe, you know, you're not seeing like people aren't coming necessarily for eczema and starting the gut or what have you, but even though that is a connection, what about, so if we're talking people listening to this, who have one of these conditions that you're, that you're, we're talking about. So IBD, IBS, functional digestive, what are some tools like that we could just share that are just some basic things that you would tell anybody to make sure they're doing when it just comes to like taking care of their gut or minding their gut. Like maybe just, we can just kind of walk away from that part of the conversation, just like giving some people some, some basic tools and I'll chip in if I have anything to offer. So, you know, for me the it's like the basic, how to live like a human stuff. So making sure that you're eating a diet that's diverse, that's not filled with pesticides, preservatives, uh, you know, antibiotics stuff, trying to keep your diet. You don't want to be taking an antibiotic three times a day with every meal. So I think that if you can really focus on the foods that are organic and especially the dirty dozen, you want to make sure those are organic. I think making sure you're moving because there's a huge correlation with movement and the intestine. And we know that exercise is one of the things that really implement how you're going to defecate and eliminate. And also the, it, you know, when we're talking about the nervous system and the enteric nervous system, exercise also plays a huge role in quieting that down as well. And so that's really, really important. And then, uh, I am at the moment on a very, very big fermented food kick. Mm. I, there was this great study. I actually, I don't know if you listen to Joshua Goldenberg's podcast. 
Yeah. It's great. It's an ev- like they look at evidence-based medicine from an integrated perspective mm. and they kind of tear apart these studies. But I just emailed him to see if he'll do that. Uh, this great study that compared people, it was like an eight-week intervention of either high fermented food or high right. fiber. And they sequenced their microbiome beforehand. They put them on the intervention for eight weeks. And then eight weeks after, they resequenced their microbiome. And the amount of biodiversity within the GI was like, exponentially better in the fermented food group. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I'm working on patients and, you know, just to back up a second, up until a hundred years ago, fermentation was the way that we preserved our food. We didn't use preservatives and we didn't really use refrigeration because my father-in-law who has recently passed used to call it the ice box. And it came into being when he was a kid, right? right? So fermentation was how we preserved our food. And so the fact that we have waged a war on bacteria and we pasteurize and homogenize everything and irradiate everything, that is killing the bacteria that we are actually more bacteria than human. And so if we Mm. can get back to eating fermented food, we see scientifically it upregulates biodiversity. But also, I think that in the past, humans were significantly healthier. Like a lot of them died in young age. But if you made it through young age, the likelihood of you dying from a chronic infection was low. The likelihood of you dying from an acute disease was higher. And so right. I feel like I'd like to get back there. <laughs> yeah, I think the study you're referring to is the from the Sonnenberg lab out of um, Stanford, right? That's it, yes. Yeah, that's a fascinating study. And, you know, it's, it's really great to hear you speaking about this because I think, you know, the, the concept of incorporating ferments um, in, into our diet is, I think, really such an important and functional way to live and we've gotten away with it i think during like the low fodmap era and the you know strip everything down from your diet era of digestive health kind of approaches and it it's really you know great to hear you say that because um these foods are just so gut friendly mm-hmm. and yep. um, of course working with a practitioner about how to introduce them, when, and what the timing is, and what form, you know, those are all things that can a practitioner can help you navigate, but to categorically stay away from something um, because it may have some bacteria in it is, you know, something kind of like, I think a lot of people fall into that trap. And it's just a bad idea. <laughs> just a bad, yeah. the more bacteria, the better. I was over, we were recording Turdners and Rebecca San has a, She's probably almost a year and she, they have a dog and um, the dog, they were like, she was on the floor. Remy was on the floor and she was like trying to eat. And Rebecca's like, she eats so many dog hairs. And I was like, yes, give her the dog hairs. It's chock full of bacteria. It gives her biodiversity. Have her eat the dog hairs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really amazing. I think, yeah, getting, having our food be alive and, nutrient rich and it's diverse. You know, I think it's diverse and yeah. So that's great. Well, those are really good suggestions and it's really great to kind of get a sense of kind of where you put your energy and put your focus. And, you know, for someone who's seeing complex cases, it tells you a lot of where a person like yourself would be putting their energy because you're seeing where, 
some of the sticky points are in these these conditions. So, you know, thinking about mitochondria, enteric, you know, enteric nervous system, biofilm, the virome, all this fascinating stuff we talked about. So I thank you for sharing that. I'd love to. How lucky are we that this is what we get to do every day? You know what I mean? Like very lucky. I yeah. mean, I, I I love our work and um, especially, you know, being able to help people with gut health and help people. I call it, you know, when the gut is like the front made front page news of your life. It's just not fun. Like yeah. if yes, if, yes, if, yes. A if, healthy GI system is one that you don't feel. You ha- you feel yeah. it when you have to poop. You feel it when you're hungry and then you don't care about it. That's right. my goal. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, when you ask someone how their gut is and like, they're like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. You know? No issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what we're going for is to make it back page news, you know, yep. and, and uh, the front page news is just a really um, difficult um, way to live and a lot of people struggle with it and they don't they they don't have a, a, an outlet of you know yeah. to to share it because it's something that isn't really obvious to other people but um, I think reaching out to function I feel like functional medicine naturopathic medicine whatever you call it people who look at the whole person look at it holistically and are gonna really put their thinking hat on yeah. Um, to solve, to help solve the issue or the people to, to consult with. I always have a GI on the team, of course. Yeah. I don't want to and, you. I sat when I was in school, I called my, my gastroenterologist and I asked her to observe a colonoscopy because my, you know, my mentor SSL was like, yeah, I totally would go observe a colonoscopy. And I went and I observed one colonoscopy and I fainted in the room while they mm-hmm. were scoping the patient. I am not built to scope you. That is not what I do. Mm-hmm. Let the other guys do that. I'm here to do the nitty gritty that they don't care about right. because they're too busy scoping. Everybody wins. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'd love for you to give us some parting words, closing thoughts, and then just also anything that you want to tell the listeners about, to, you know, where to follow you, you know, where, where, what the name of your podcast is again. And, and just like, I know you're doing some other things. If you want to tell us about anything else, like classes you're giving or how people can reach you. So, uh, the podcast is called the turd nerds. Uh, you can find it on any podcast players and we launch every two weeks. So there's lots of content there. My other passion, which we didn't talk about is actually injections and neural therapy in particular, which when you're talking about a treatment that addresses the nervous system, in my opinion, neural therapy is the way to do that. It's a very, very simple, very easy to learn injection-based therapy. And you can find, if you're curious, me and Dr. Ann Hill pair together and we teach classes on it. You can find us at uh, learnneuraltherapy.com. Could not be easier. And we have a class in October and we have a level two coming up in November. And then the gastro AMP is the other passion that I have. Uh, And then my clinic, you can find me at openwellness.com. Or open wellness PDX, openwellnesspdx.com. And that's a practice that we're hoping to launch sometime in the next year, but that's where all my information is. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Adam, for having me. I really, it was nice getting to talk to you. Same here. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, 
anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from that. Forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.